Hey everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brendan Carr. Today's guest is Paul de Gelder. Paul served in the Australian Army as a paratrooper, then transitioned to the Australian Navy to serve as a clearance diver. On a mission in 2009, Paul was attacked by a bull shark in Sydney Harbor. In that attack, Paul lost both his right hand and his right leg. After just six months of rehabilitation, Paul did the unthinkable. He went back to work full-time as a Navy clearance diver. He served another three years in the Australian Navy before leaving. He has since gone on to swim with sharks multiple times. He's become a host for Discovery Channel's Shark Week, and he owns his own business. In this episode, Paul tells us why impossible is bullshit, how to build a belief system that will get you through any challenging situation, and he tells the chilling story of the day that he came face-to-face -face with a bull shark on his leg. So here he is, the man Casey Neistat called one of the world's greatest bamps, Paul de Gelder. So Paul, how are you? I'm good. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little exhausted after my shoulder workout today and then walking the dog and then washing the dog and then going to pick up parcels and now it's just kind of like, now I've stopped and I'm, I'm just running out of steam. <laughs> so uh, I just, I always like to keep moving. That's what keeps me going as long as I'm moving. Yeah, you're such an active guy. How, how did you groom this, this habit, this lifestyle of being so physical? Army. The army. Yeah. <laughs> well, it started young. Um, my dad was a swimming coach, so we always had to get up early and go swimming or after school, we'd be at swimming training. Um, but then it went away for a while. Um, I, I stopped swimming about 14, 15 and went into a, a lifestyle that probably wasn't as healthy. Lots of drinking and smoking cigarettes and smoking marijuana and things like that. Um, but then I hit 23, joined the army and it all started coming back. And uh, you know, th that foundation of all the swimming training and the cardiovascular activities served me well, uh, even though I hadn't done it in probably eight years. Uh, the army just, it, it trained me to the point where I'm programmed now that I get up, I get ready and I go to the gym and I train. And if I don't do that, then I feel like something's off. I've been programmed, you know, because what do you, what's the first thing you do when you get up, when, when you go to work? In the infantry and in the clearance divers, you get up, you go to work, you train. It's the first thing you do. So it's kind of just my routine now. Yeah, built into your lifestyle. Yeah. And, you, and you feel something if you don't get the workout in. Yeah. You're saying there's a... And obviously there's, you've got to have the rest days. Um, and... I probably do a little more sleeping in on those days, but yeah, it's just programmed. It's, it's building a habit. You know, that's probably the hardest thing for people outside of the health and fitness realm to, to achieve. Spending enough time doing it that they turn it into a habit. Um, whereas us in the military, we're lucky, we're forced into doing it, we don't have a choice. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I can totally relate to being a military guy. It's something that becomes part and of the system. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. So my whole life has been the science of exercise and how we respond to exercise. So mm -hmm. totally get that. It's kind of like, I feel like it's, a, it's like going to the jungle gym as a kid. Now it's, it's not supposed to be a chore, it's supposed to be fun. There's so many body parts you can work, so many different exercises, so many different training programs. You've got fascia stretching techniques, you've got German volume training, you've got drop sets, and you've got all this variety of training you can do, high intensity workouts, all this stuff. So 
I don't understand why people would find it not fun or boring. Like it, it's so much fun. It, it's like going to the jungle gym as a kid. You just get to go in there and play and do whatever you want. Yeah, absolutely. Like I just, I just discovered kettlebell training. Okay. And I feel like something comes alive when I'm <laughs> swinging heavy weights around and moving and uh -huh. you know dropping into a deep squat and throwing something heavy over my head. Yeah. There's a, there's something that comes to life yeah. when you do that. Like playing as a kid. It's, it's animalistic. Yeah. yeah. You feel like the the gorilla in the tree swinging swinging little monkeys around. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it brings something out for sure. So for you, as as a guy who you said you had this lifestyle before the military, where you were getting into drugs and drinking and things like that, and maybe there wasn't the the authority or the the structure in your life. Mm -hmm. How did you come to take on a very structured military life? How did that transition go? It was so hard. Yeah. It was so hard. Um, when I when I was thinking about joining the army. I called my brothers because they were already in artillery and I called them up. I said, hey, what do you think about me joining the army? And they just pissed themselves. Uh, they were like, no way. You're, there's no way you can do this. He's <laughs> like, your lifestyle and the military lifestyle do not go hand in hand. Um, but if you're going to do it, do it. It's great. Just don't join infantry because that's really hardcore. So I thought I can't have my baby brothers tell me what to do. I'll join infantry. And just sort of, you know, that, that's kind of how my life has always been. Don't think too much about it. Just jump in head first and, and see what happens. And then by that stage, you can't get out of it. Like there's no, you're not getting out of basic training unless you've got a serious injury. And I'm, I'm not going to pull something stupid like that. So I just, I tried to change the way that I saw my situation and the way that I dealt with it instead of uh, rebelling against it like I had so many times in the past going through school and going through discipline at home. Um, I tried to look at the good things that I enjoyed within the basic training, which you know, my, my, my physicality started coming back because I wasn't drinking and smoking weed and cigarettes and stuff like that. Um, so I started to get this feeling of, you know, I'm getting stronger, I'm getting fitter. And you know what, it's a, it was always a competition, you know, boys together, it's always a competition. So I started beating guys, a couple of guys, and then more guys to the point where I got the PT award at the end of basic training. So I had this sense of pride after that. And there's stuff you don't like. No one likes parade ground. Um, no one likes sitting on the hard baked earth, cocking a machine gun like this, getting tendonitis in your elbow and, and you know, getting bitten by mosquitoes and freezing hot, and, uh, freezing cold and boiling hot. But you're hanging out with your mates. You're out in the bush or the jungle covered in camp paint with a machine gun and a rifle. You got, you know, we had the big wombat um, uh, grenade launcher guns as well. So it was, it was kind of cool when you looked at it like that. You know, you, sometimes you've got to step outside yourself and look down on what you're doing and go, yeah, it's, it's not so bad. You know, I could be doing a lot worse. I could be back out in the civilian world, sitting on my ass, working behind a bar, smoking cigarettes and drinking bourbon and coke and not having anything fulfilling and not building anything. So when I looked at it like that, it kind of motivated me to keep going and, and keep trying to excel. And then through doing that consistently, I was training myself and I was training my brain and training my body and it got easier and easier to look at that. And it's true in anything that we do, whether it's, it's happiness, whether it's physicality, whether it's emotional well-being, things like meditating, you're never going to be great at it when you start. You know, sometimes we're not happy, but the more you practice, like after, after 
what happened to me, I wasn't happy. I, you know, I, I was looking down the barrel of losing my career uh, and everything that I held dear to myself. So I learned by that stage that I need to train myself. I need to practice continuously to get to where I need to be, happiness-wise, physical-wise, and, and in my career. So over the years in the military, that trained me because we go through a lot of bad shit. We, we have to deal with a lot of really crappy scenarios. Uh, our bodies go through hell, our minds go through hell. So it forced me into continuously practicing to not just be positive, but, but use um, useful, useful beliefs that I was doing things for a purpose. I was doing things for a good cause. I was serving my country. I was, I was representing my country and myself and I was looking after my mates. And that just kept building and getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where now I can't even believe how good my life is. Yeah, and this, this idea of useful beliefs, it seems like it's one of your superpowers. <laughs> you, you have a way to take situations and to build this belief system around how you're gonna attack the situation. Could you explain in kind of a general term how someone could go about doing that if they come across something in life and they wanna, they wanna build a belief system that's gonna help them to get through it? Yeah, well look, I'm not immune to the downside as well. I, I get just as, cranky and upset as everyone does. I have my bad days. I, I get mad at people. Sometimes I'm impatient. Um, a lot of the times that has to do with whether I've had enough sleep, actually. It's, sometimes it's just that simple. If I haven't had enough sleep, I've had a restful sleep, I wake up and I'm just very impatient with people. Um, but I know that. I know the cause, I know the effect, so I know how to solve the problem. And that's one of the biggest things that you can do. If there's something going wrong, you gotta look at why. Think about it, why? Why am I having a shit time? Why am I upset? Why am I angry? And if there is a reason, then there is a solution. I'm a firm believer in that there is no problem that is so great that there is not a solution that you can use to overcome it. Whether that be talking about the problems, getting it off your chest and getting advice from friends and family and colleagues and workmates and all of that. Whether it's taking some time out, getting off the phone, getting off the computer, going down to the beach. You know, that the ocean out there, as you know, it just has this incredible ability to wash away a lot of the stresses and tensions that we have in our lives. Um, so doing that, going for a swim, just like, I don't even go in the ocean here. I don't, I'm not sure about the ocean in LA, but I don't, I don't need to. Now I can sit on my balcony there and I can see it and I just need to know that it's there. I can never move away from it. So what I do is I just, find the root cause of the problem, I address it. Um, and I, I'm quite, it, back in the old army days, I probably wasn't as in touch with myself. I uh, wasn't in touch with my vulnerability because we get trained to just man up, you know, man up, don't worry about it, just bury it down, just don't even think about the bad stuff, just, just move forward continuously. Definitely, um, always about the compartmentalizing yeah. everything before the mission. Uh-huh, yeah, you don't need to talk about it. If you talk about it, it becomes real. If you don't talk about it, then you just you worry about it later. But the problem is, then later you gotta worry about it all and you get dumped with all this emotional baggage. And um, when I got out of the Navy and I was, I was just beginning to speak, I talked to a friend of mine who's a, a very famous female surfer and she'd been speaking for a long time and, and she asked me to speak at one of her fundraisers and I, I got together with her after, afterwards and I said, I asked for advice, which was something that I never did either. <laughs> I was like, okay, so how was it? W was it okay? Was it what you were after? She said, look, it was really great, but 
you're just so damn military. You just, this happened and this happened and this happened. And it's like, it's great, but you need to give more of yourself because through doing that, then you'll be able to um, attach those feelings to the audience as well through vulnerability is strength. And I, I took that away and thought about it for a while and I was just like, I don't know how to do that. I don't, what does she expect? Like, am I going to get on stage and cry? Or like, I, I really had to think about it. I think that's something that military people, um, especially you know, alpha male type guys, we have a hard time doing because we're the man, we're the provider, you know, we're the alpha male. We, we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And it was something that I really had to try and do because at that stage I was out of the Navy trying to build a new career and if I wanted to be the best at it, then I had to take advice from people who'd been doing it, no matter how uncomfortable that was. So allowing yourself to be vulnerable, allowing yourself to get some of this stuff off your chest, addressing your emotional and mental well-being is, is an absolutely important factor of that into being able to achieve everything that your heart desires. Absolutely, and especially I think if you want, if you want to reach people. Yeah, um, you, know, you know what, as soldiers, um, especially the males, um, we can be comfortable in our masculinity, which is something that I didn't realize. Dude, we're soldiers. We carry guns, we protect people, we're men. And I always thought I had to carry that on into every aspect of my life. And then I learned that that's not true. I don't have to do that. I don't have to be the alpha male at all times of the day. I can still go into the gym and smash it up as hard as I want. I can be the protector and I can be the provider, but I can also be a sensitive guy as well. Like I can just relax and I can chuck on a pair of pink shorts, <laughs> um, metaphorically speaking. Like, you don't have to be that alpha male all the time. You can be the, the carer as well. And I think that just makes you a stronger man. Yeah, and in an event like speaking, it would seem that if you really want to touch people, if you want to reach them, if you have a message that you're bringing, if you're yeah. trying to share a, an idea to the world, mm -hmm. if you can take those walls down a little bit, you reach people better. You get Definitely. a little closer to them. Definitely, when I was writing the book, there were certain aspects um, of the story that I really was unsure about writing about. Um, parts where when I was a teenager and I started slashing up my arms because I was struggling with life and I was super depressed, uh, you know, it was never diagnosed because I never told anyone, but I was struggling at school, I was struggling, stu struggling at home with discipline, I was just struggling at life in general. And that the cutting of my, my arms and my skin and the pain felt like the only thing I could control. But I was really scared about putting that in the book and giving that much of myself. But the, the stories like that that I did put in there, they were the ones that people spoke to me about the most. And I was walking down the street in Sydney one day and this young guy came up to me and he, he spoke to me about it and he said, I, I'm so grateful for reading your book and you know, I was a self-harmer as well and I thought there was something wrong with me and I thought I was alone. And your book and your stories helped me so much getting through that, knowing that I'm not broken because of that situation. And so that vulnerability, the, the things that I was most scared about telling were the things that helped people the most. So now I've learned that lesson. Now I can give more of myself and I don't have to worry about being embarrassed about these stories because we're just humans. You know, my story is no bigger or better than anyone else's. It's just a little bit different. 
I may have learnt different lessons that I can provide to other people and I can still be a sponge and absorb lessons from others. You know, we're all here to help each other get through this crazy thing called life. I think that, that student attitude is part of the reason that you are going so far, that you have so many things going for you. You, you seem to learn from everybody and you talk so much about who you learned from growing up. Could you maybe talk a little bit about some lessons from your dad, your grandfather that you learned growing up? Uh, yeah, my, my grandfather was my hero when I was a little kid. Um, love my dad, but you know, you see dad all the time. So <laughs> he's always making me go swimming training at five o'clock in the morning. But you know, on certain weekends, I'd go up north and hang out with my grandfather and we'd do the cool stuff. You know, we'd blow up the raft and we'd raft down the river or we'd go out spear fishing and he'd give me a spear gun and I, I was too small to even cock the gun. And he just, he'd let me go out there and we'd spear stingrays together and we'd cook it all up. And he just, he kind of taught me about being that, the, um, I don't know, the adventurer, the adventurous side of life. Um, he, he reminded me of like David Attenborough, a young version of him. Um, and, and, and dad taught me discipline. He taught me one of the greatest lessons that I have in life, which was swimming. Uh, I was able to transfer from the Army Airborne Infantry to the Navy Clearance Divers without ever having scuba dived in my life because I was so comfortable in the water. Without those lessons from my dad, I wouldn't be where I am today. I may have two hands and two legs, but, <laughs> but I wouldn't be living this amazing dream, living in America, traveling the world, filming for Shark Week. Absolutely. You know, and that, this is literally a, a dream life for me. Yeah, we were talking before, you have, you have so many irons in the fire, so many projects going on, and it's, it's funny how the twists and turns of life, the things that seem like curveballs might be something you knock out of the park. Yeah, exactly right. Through, through the, the worst thing that has ever happened to me, the thing that nearly killed me, has come the greatest opportunity. Yeah. As long as you don't, you don't give up on it. You know, you don't, I, I literally had to rebuild. I was in a hospital bed, I had a, a bulb of ketamine around my neck, permanently pumping ketamine to my stomach. I was self-medicating morphine. My leg was just cut off, my hand was gone. I was looking at the barrel of losing my career. I couldn't ride my motorcycle anymore. I couldn't even go to the toilet by myself. This was just, what am I gonna do? But the thing is, that's not a rhetorical question. You, know, you have to seriously think about what am I gonna do? Yeah, this is a, another challenge, just, just like, Leaving home, just like joining the army, just like going to the navy, you've got another challenge. What are you going to do? And so I, I thought about life previous to that, and I thought, well, what made it so good before? And I thought, well, you know, I was living a, a great adventurous lifestyle. I was shooting guns. I was blowing stuff up. I was diving and traveling the world with my mates. And the first thing we did when we got to work, like we were saying before, was PT. And I thought, oh, okay, all right, well, why would I break a good routine? I started trying to work out how to do PT from my bed and I was doing one-arm chin-ups on the bar above my bed and we tied TheraBands to the bars all around the bed so I could, even before I could go to the toilet, I could work out. And then I thought, well, what am I gonna do now? Like, where am I gonna take my life? It, it, was, it was just such a seriously complicated situation. So I thought, well, I don't like complicated situations, let's make it simple. What do I want? Do I want a good life or do I want a bad life? Simple. So I chose a good life, as everyone would. Okay, I want a good life, how do I go about that? 
Oh, well, I need to get a plan in place. I need to set goals and challenges. Okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I can't do much right now, but I can look at what I'm eating. I, you know, the food is the fuel that's gonna support my body. I need to look at what I'm eating. I probably need to eat healthier. I probably need to eat more because I've just lost 15 pounds in 10 seconds. Um, not a weight loss regime I would recommend. So I need to bulk up and get strong and I need to keep my mind active and not, not just dwell on stuff. Sometimes you just gotta put that thinking about the situation to the back of your mind and just start acting. Okay, so I need to start acting. I need to start achieving things and I need to get onto the internet. You know, we live in this amazing world where, where we have the, the wealth of the world's knowledge within a few keystrokes. So I got onto Google and I'm looking for the latest and greatest in prosthetic technology. I could get onto YouTube and I could watch video clips of people missing limbs doing incredible things. And so I thought, well, I'm a soldier. Right? If these people can do it, there's no reason I can't do it as well. So I know I've got the backing of the military, they're gonna pay for all my prosthetics. I'll just get all the best prosthetics and I'll work out how to build from there. So eat better, get up earlier, drink more fluids, train my ass off and look down the line at what I absolutely want to achieve, which would get back to work. You know, so I had this, it's, it's always great to have this really huge impossible dream and then work backwards. Right, where do I need to start? and then build, 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 build. You just set the small achievable goals because they're small and they're achievable. And the more of those you do, the better you feel about yourself and about the path you're on because you can literally see yourself achieving things. So the more of those I achieved, I, I, I just practice my walking. I just go down to Bondi and really, really busy place, but it was the only flat ground in the area and I'd walk along the promenade there on my walking cane and everyone would stare at me, whether they knew the story or not. A lot of people knew the story because it was huge news, um, but a lot of tourists as well. And every time I went down there, people would stare at me. I'd be so awkward and so embarrassed, but I couldn't let that stop me from, from doing the things that I love and, and achieving these goals. So I just put my head down. I just try and walk as far as I could on my walking cane without throwing up. And then I'd do it again the next day and again the next day. And, and I just get into a routine of getting off the drugs, going for a walk, eating better food, focusing and learning what I need to achieve next. And it just got easier and easier and easier to, until six months later. You know, they told me I'd probably never be a clearance diver again. Six months later, I went back to work. And they said, you can go and work three half days a week at the diving school as an instructor. So I went five full days a week and I just stayed and I just worked my ass off and proved that I deserved to be there. And six months, but they said it was impossible. Impossible's bullshit. Like, the doctors were trying to slow me down. The physiotherapist was trying to slow me down. I was like, no, I have goals. I have purpose. I ha I'm building value in my life. I will not stop for you. you know, so that was, that was how I did it. And I don't like to jam information down people's throat. I don't like to say, you should do it this way. This is how I do it, did it. You should do it. But if I can do it this way, then there's no reason that other people going through a similar set of circumstances, whether it's it's going through problems with your own kids and learning from the fact that you know, I had problems as well. Maybe you don't need to stress out so much about your children. Maybe just love them. Maybe just instill good values in them and, and just let them know you'll be there for, for them whenever they want you because that works. That's what I needed then and that's what helped me get through that period of my life and I stopped slashing myself and I started doing more physicality and I started doing better in life as well. Um, but I've kind of forgotten where I'm going with that. It's amazing where you are going with it, Paul. And, and one of your 
things that you come back to is, is this mindset that you have that that is someone that other people, something that other people can adopt. Other people can take on you know, the stronger mindset that you have. And you have a quote in your book. I jotted it down. I wonder if you could talk about it. Talk about negativity. And you said, negativity is a vacuum in which nothing else can exist. It had no usefulness, and I decided to ban it from my life. Mm. Could you talk yeah. about that moment? Yeah. Um, I, was, I think I was laying in my bed at home, and I had really, really bad phantom pains um, in my foot that wasn't there, in my hand was, wasn't there. And it, it would keep me up at nights, crying my eyes out. Um, because I just couldn't get to sleep and I was so tired but the pain was just so intense and I was drugging myself to the eyeballs and it wasn't working for the longest period and then all of a sudden maybe I just, I just black out because of all the drugs and I'd wake up in the morning and I was so tired and I just didn't want to get out of bed and I didn't want to face the world and I, I was really struggling with that positivity and with that impossible dream of going back to work. So I thought about that and I thought about you know, I get to have a choice in this. You know, my body is struggling right now and that's understandable, but I get to have a choice. This may be the only power that I have right now, how I make my choices, what I choose to do. And so, like I was saying before, I made the simple choice. What am I gonna do, good life or bad life? I choose a good life. Because of what is in a bad life? Negativity. You know, I could have pushed all my friends and family away that were giving me support. I could have got addicted to my amazing pain meds. Uh, I could drown my sorrows drinking. Um, and, and occasionally I did do that, you know, not for long periods, maybe a day here, a day there, and I just couldn't handle it. And I just, I'd smash a bottle of vodka or whatever like that. But the next day I'd be like, you're an idiot. What did you do that for? Now you've got phantom pains and you're hungover. You're an idiot. Stop doing that. So I'd give myself that mental uppercut and I'd get back on track with my goals. And one of the, the best things my friend said to me was, it's okay to feel bad. Don't never feel bad about feeling bad. It's okay. Just identify why you're feeling bad. Maybe try and fix it. If you can't, just fucking move on. Just get on with life. And so whenever I did feel bad, whenever I was having a really shitty day and I might feel guilty for not going out and trying to achieve my goals, I go, it's okay. It's all right, it's okay, it's not, it's not a bad thing to feel bad. We all feel bad, just don't let it ruin your whole day, your whole week, or your whole life. And that, that's something that, that helped me with that negativity. Because you can get easily stuck on that negativity. It can go from being a speed bump to a, to a red light, and you just will not ever go past that red light if you don't want to. And so I just ban the negativity. Anything that would bring me down, any friend that I didn't feel was feeding me positivity and was bringing my emotional state down or filling my life full of drama, I would just get rid of. You know? I, I can't help you right now. I'm, I'm dealing with my own stuff, so you're going to have to not be here. Uh, any, basically, anything that was not, was not helping me achieve my goals was in my way. That was, that was the negativity. So I just banned it. There was not going to be a single negative aspect in my life if I was going to achieve these goals. And obviously that's not always possible to do, but it helps if you put yourself into that mindset where you start identifying the useful and unuseful aspects in your life, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a job, whether it be your own mental focus. You know, what you focus on, you bring into, into your reality. So if you're continuously focusing on 
the pain that you have? Are you continuously focusing on the fact that you're depressed? Or are you continuously focusing on a bad relationship? That gets bigger and bigger and bigger in your world. Stop thinking about it. Stop, stop focusing on the things that you can control, the things that will bring positivity and joy into your life instead of the things that are bringing you down. So that's all I did. I just removed those things that stopped me. Wow. And it's when you touch on these ideas of this big goal that you talk about and banning the negativity, it seems like there's this feedback loop. Like in the pursuit of this big goal, mm -hmm. you're cutting back on the negativity to have a better life, and then the pursuit of the goal leads to the better life, and you want the better life to get to the goal, it seems uh -huh. to go around and around yeah. for you. And the funny thing is that as soon as you start getting closer and closer to that big goal, bigger goals start opening up. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, that impossible dream for me of getting back to work was so close, they said I could go back to work, and now I'm like, what else am I gonna do? I I've already proven to myself that impossible is bullshit. Okay, so what else can I do? And I started thinking, well, maybe I can get requalified on all the diving equipment, and I did. And maybe I could get into maintenance, and I learned how to break down all the, the diving helmets into a thousand pieces and put it all back together with one hand, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. To the point where now it's like, what am I going to do next? Like, I'm, I've literally moved to America, started a whole new career in a realm where I grew up looking at people in my job as my heroes. David Attenborough, Steve Irwin, Dr. Suzuki, um, Albie Mangles, Ron and Valerie Taylor, all these incredible naturalists and adventurers and explorers. And now that's me. You're part of that, that legacy. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I cannot believe that I get to do this. It's, but it's testament to the fact that it works. You know, the pursuit of impossible dreams, taking the challenges and, and, and setting little goals for yourself and, and removing all that negativity from your life and just making a clear path to what you need to achieve. It's, it's never actually gonna be the clear straight path, but it helps if you put it in that perspective because then you can see down the end of the path, you can see that goal at the end of the light and it's always gonna go like this, it's always gonna be ups and downs, it's never one dimensional, it's always four dimensional. You're gonna get wet, you're gonna cry, you're gonna get angry and bloody and you're gonna lose your way sometimes but you still have that goal there and you know it's there so you can always come back, you can always get back on track. Like you said, I've got so many things going on right now, I, I, I need to bring them all together so I have that clear path but I don't believe that anything is unachievable anymore because I've already proven that it's not. Yeah. So what does, what does that maybe not so clear path look for you right now? What are the, what are the big things on your horizon? I know we've got Shark Week coming up. We need a whiteboard. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so at the moment, so what I wanted to do was I'm, I moved out here and for two years I was living in Airbnbs. Um, because I was bouncing between America and Australia, doing speaking jobs in Australia to provide myself with money to come out to America and meet production companies and uh, expand on my Shark Week um, programs that I had once a year. You know, I loved that so much. It was such a good transfer from uh, the military paying me to go and have adventures to now television companies will actually pay you to do the same thing. And you're not getting yelled at. They actually treat you really well. And so I was like, this is even better than the military. Um, so for two years, I just did Airbnbs and it was really hard. I had a, a car in Sydney and a car in LA and I just bounced to and fro. And I had very few personal belongings, which was kind of nice. Um, but at the end of that, it was also really nice to just stop 
and have a routine and a schedule again. So I, through those two years, I developed a relationship with uh, a few production companies. And now I have uh, three Shark Week shows a year that I do, plus all the extenuous things like yesterday I was interviewing uh, the cast of The Meg, the, the Jason Statham movie. So that's random things just pop up like that. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to speak at a juvenile detention centre to try and give back some of the fortune that I've had. Um, go and talk to these kids and maybe change their perspectives on life as well. Um, so speaking is one avenue. I've now got a, a speaking bureau that looks after me and I flew off to New York last week and got paid ridiculous amounts of money to speak for a company for an hour. And then I come home and now I'll give back. I'll go and talk at the juvenile detention center. And I've just finished filming Shark Week. I've got um, a, a, a program waiting for a green light, which could potentially be my own series with Animal Planet, which is gonna be exploring the, the world's underwater mysteries. And then there's other aspects. I, I, I wanna stay here. I really, really love living in America. I love the culture. I love how the cultures change per county and per town. Uh, I love the people. You're also lovely and welcoming. Um, and I love the landscape. It just changes everywhere you go. It's so beautiful. And so I want to stay here. You know, Australia is amazing. It'll always be home. But I've lived there my whole life. Now it's time to continue to grow. And so I'm going to come out here and I'm growing through the TV stuff. I'm growing on the speaking platform. And I also want to make sure that I can afford to live here. So I'm using some of the money that I've made wisely investing in businesses so that um, you know, I'm not making any money yet and I probably won't for a couple of years, but I know it's there. I know it's building, I know it's working for me. So that's gonna help me out in the long run. Um, something that took some time to learn. You know, Short-term goals are great, they're really great, but having the long-term game in your head it is much more important. And so much of the, the things that you're doing now are about you being a very public person. Mm. This big public figure, you're speaking, you're on stages a lot, but. You were kind of reluctant at first. Could you talk about how you, you made that transition? I was terrified of public speaking. There was only two things I was absolutely petrified of. Sharks and public speaking. I, um, before I joined the army, I tried to get into information technology, like computer programming stuff, because I just, I was drifting and I was lost. And I'm like, it's what my dad did and he made okay money later in life. Uh, all right, was, I'll go. Was this before or after Snoop Dogg? Uh, <laughs> this was before Snoop Dogg. Okay. Um, so I was living in a, the capital of Australia, Canberra. Uh, I'd been kicked out of home at 17 and I was just trying to find my way in life. So I did an information technology course and I'd done about four or five months and then there was a section where we had to, we had to do communications, we had to do public speaking. And I was so scared and I did one and it was so bad. I, I was standing in front of my class and some of these guys were like business people and they had PowerPoints and I didn't even know what a PowerPoint was. And I'm reading this thing off my piece of paper and my hands were shaking and my face was going red and my eyes started watering and I finished and I left and I didn't go back. I just quit. That's how terrified I was of public speaking. Um, and then after the shark attack and I went back to work for a year and I ha did have companies asking me to speak and I just said, no, no, no way. No, I'm not interested in speaking. And then a cancer camp for kids asked me to speak. And you can't say no to kids with cancer. Like, it's just horrible. So I said yes, and I went along terrified. And I walked into the room and there's this, like, 25 kids. And I could not believe how scared I was of these children. 
<laughs> a big, big bad military guy, scared of a room full of children. Um, and I got up there and I, I gave this presentation and I made these kids laugh and we had a good time and I walked out of there feeling so rewarded that I thought maybe I could do this again. And I went from there to my old high school, uh, Catholic boys school with 1200 kids. And that was, that was nerve wracking all over again. My mum was in the front row, my best friend was in the front row. I was shaking, I was scared. It felt like my, my vertebrae were rusty. And every time I moved my head, I was doing this. Um, and then the, the principal was speaking and introducing me and all the kids were moving and talking. You know, 1200 kids moving a foot makes a lot of noise. So the, there was so much noise. Then he introduced me, I got on stage and I started speaking and about 10 minutes in, I stopped and I looked around and it was just dead silence. And 1200 faces looking up at me with their mouths open. And I looked down at my buddy and he was just like, it's like, this is amazing. And so I, I continued on and it just got bigger from there. I started doing very, very small free jobs for uh, charity events and then corporations asked, asked me to speak for them and I started making a little bit of money. But at the same time, the Navy wouldn't give me leave to go and do that, even though I was promoting the military. And I had to use my annual leave to go and do it and I eventually ran out of annual leave. And at that point, I was making my Navy wage in one hour. So two weeks, I could work, I was doing 70, 80 hour weeks you know, finishing with these trainees at the Navy Dive School at two in the morning, being back at work at six. I, I was killing myself trying to keep up. I was, I was getting more injuries. I started drinking more on the weekends and I was just struggling in my life and relationship and everything. And I thought, do I need to do this? I can literally go on stage and talk for an hour and make my two weeks wage. And so, I talked to my boss and I asked him what the chances were of me going to the teams again and he said zero. He said to go to the teams you have to be deployable for war. And I was like, I guess I can't do that then. Well, I'm going to have to move on. I'm going to have to do that big scary leap just, just like I did when I joined the army, just when I did when I transferred to the Navy. I'm going to have to do it all over again. But I trained myself by that point to know that the, the, the big scary decisions are usually the ones that are worth making because they always lead into the next adventure. As long as you embrace it and you work at 100% capacity on everything that you're doing from that point on, they always turn out great. The, the army was a, a lifetime I'll never forget. The navy was incredible. Um, and now it, it's turned into another whole life because I did what the military trained me to do. I got up, I dusted myself off and I got on with the job. And it just, it works. Were there big surprises when you made that big scary leap? Civilians are kind of painful. <laughs> um, I really had to, to just change the way that I thought about people. But at the same time, I learned a lot from them. You know, I learned um, a lot more about um, how, to, how to communicate because you, go, you can't turn up to these speaking jobs and not, you can get on stage and speak for an hour and that's all great, but then you get off stage and everyone wants to talk to you. Everyone wants to have a chat. They wanna ask the questions that you didn't answer on stage. And so you have to, I've just finished speaking for an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. I'm just emotionally drained. And now I've gotta to talk to these people that I don't even know and give more of myself. 
So I had to learn how to do that and realize that if it was me, if I was the civilian and I was the person hearing this story, then I'd be curious too. I'd want to ask as well. So I, had, I, I learned patience through doing that. You know, sometimes the hardest things you go through in life have the greatest lessons. You just have to see it from someone else's perspective. And one thing that you, you must talk about is the event of the shark attack. Could you tell us how that all went down? Yeah, big day that one. Um, pretty shitty day at work. Um, I was, what was happening was uh, the Defence Science and Technology Department, which is our R&D department, they wanted to trial some new equipment. It was unmanned video and sonar. The goal was they could take it anywhere around the world and they could turn it on and leave it and walk away and it would, the sonar and the video would detect attack swimmers and attack divers on the surface and underwater coming in to you know, sabotage our ships. So we were pretending to be the attack swimmers and I was second in the water. I just pulled out the new guy who'd, who'd been in the water for half an hour and I jumped over in a black wetsuit, pair of black fins and uh, I was just finning. I was on the surface on my back, kicking my legs and I was in the water for about four minutes and I looked over my shoulder to make sure that I was going in the right direction and before I could turn back, I just got this huge sort of whack in my leg and it didn't really hurt, it just felt like pressure. You know, maybe like someone hit me in the leg with a bat and I turn around and look down and literally my worst nightmare was attached to me. Like I, like I said, oh, the only two things I was absolutely terrified of, sharks and public speaking, and now I've got a shark attached to me. And I didn't know what to do. And then I thought, okay, I've seen Shark Week. I'll jab it in the eyeball. But I couldn't move my arm and it had my hand in, in its mouth as well. So I'm starting to panic. And so I go, left hand, all right. I couldn't reach the eyeball. How, I'm, I'm just panicking. How am I gonna get this thing off me? And so I push it by the nose, but that pushes the lower jaw deeper into my leg. And so that's when the pain starts kicking in a little bit and I, and I swing back to hit it in the head and it starts to shake me. And the teeth act like a saw. And so it's sawing the flesh out of my leg. And some people surprisingly ask me, did it hurt? Yeah, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Go and, go and kick your leg on that coffee table and then times it by a million. Um, and it took me underwater and I came to the realization that there's no way that I can get out of this. There was nothing I could do. I, I had nothing to grab onto. There, I couldn't push it off. I was underwater, I was running out of air. And this thing was like 600 pounds of pure muscle with teeth. And it's got my hand, it's got my leg, and I'm just a rag doll. I'm gonna die. I'm not going home today, I'm gonna die. And so I thought about it and it wasn't like, um, time slowed down, it was more like my brain sped up. You know, the adrenaline must have kicked in and my brain was just working at light speed because all of this is in a matter of eight to 10 seconds, but it felt so much longer. Um, and I was thinking, okay, well, I'm gonna die. Am I ready to go? And I thought, you know what? I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I've done things that I could never have dreamed of doing. And if I'm ready to go, if I'm, if I'm gonna go, then I'm ready and a calm came over me and I just sort of felt myself drifting away and then all of a sudden I popped to the surface and my head came out of the water and I could sucked in air and I thought, oh shit, I'm not dead. And I saw the, the shark's tail splash water in my face and then I saw my safety boat. And I thought, okay, I've got to get out of here before it comes back. So I started to swim 
but I took my arm out of the water to take a stroke and my hand was gone. And so my training kicked in and I thought, I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding. Now all those hundreds and thousands of hours of medical training you do that sometimes you're just like, oh, we're doing this again. This is why you do it again. So that instantly it kicks in without you even thinking about it. Keep the wound above your heart. So I'm swimming back to the safety boat with one leg and one hand working and through a pool of my own blood. And I'm just thinking, this shark's gonna come back any second, it's gonna grab me by the ankle and I'm gonna die. But I just kept swimming anyway. The guys in the safety boat can see what was happening. So they're gunning over to me at the same time. And we good? So, so they're gunning over to me at the same time. And they said the, the blood was so thick in the water you could taste it in the air. Fortunately, they got to me first. They pulled me out of the water, lay me flat and just started first aid and kept me alive. One of the guys had to stick his hand inside my leg and pinch closed an artery to stop the bleeding. Um, they got me to the wharf and, and just kept me alive until the paramedics were there. But my chief who was on shore already thought I was dead he, because I was so white. There was so much blood in the bottom of the boat that he just thought there's no way he could survive that. And I, I moved and he just thought, oh, wow. Wow, he's game on, all right, we've got to keep him alive till the paramedics get here. Then the paramedics came, fortunately, pretty quickly, and the hospital wasn't too far away either. So everything just sort of came into play that day. My training, the, you know, dealing with stressful situations, my mate's first aid training, the, the paramedics being close by, the hospital being close by, a theatre being set up. I went through uh, 300 donations of blood, you know, 150 litres of blood. We, you know, we might think that to do a good deed, you have to do some grand gesture. Sometimes it's as simple as going and giving blood. Without those 300 incredible people donating, taking a little time out of their day to do that, I could have had the best doctors in the world, but I would not be here today. So you don't always have to do a big grand gesture. Sometimes the, the little good deeds mean the most. Wow. Yeah, and that's such a, such a testament to your philosophy too. You're, some people could look at this day and they could say, well, you know, you pulled that guy out of the water, he could have stayed in and, and it could have been someone else out there and all these factors that seem to be wrong, but you're saying, my mates were ready. I was well trained. They had the surgery theater set up. Mm -hmm. Everything was ready and everything came together to save your life. Yeah, and if, if Lockie, the, the guy that I had in the water, had stayed in the water, we all agreed he probably would have died because he was a lot smaller than I was. Mm -hmm. So he gets to live, I lose a couple of limbs, Right? It's the better of the two evils. Wow. That, that's a, it's weird, that's right? It's weird. <laughs> and and I, I never even thought twice about it. I, and I never blamed the shark because I chose that life. You know, I, I chose to deal with bombs and explosives and guns and rocket launchers and diving and riding a motorcycle and all that. So I put myself in a position where <laughs> I was surrounded by danger all of the time. So you can't get upset when something goes wrong. You just gotta deal with that shit. That's incredible. That, that leads me to a question from one of our listeners. Uh, this one comes from Jerome. He's a Marine Corps officer and he asks, are you a Stoic? I've been studying Stoic philosophy and it sounds like you're a Stoic. <laughs> my, um, I went and gave a presentation to my old army battalion. Um, they, uh, a few years back, they lost their paratrooper role. They lost their Maroon Beret. A lot of them lost their identity. A lot of them left and they moved towns up north to a town where there was an, uh, two other battalions of infantry and they were just really struggling. And 
I didn't really know about much, know much about stoicism, but my old um, company commander was now the battalion commander, and he invited me up to go and talk to his battalion and kind of give him a kick in the bum, maybe a little bit of motivation through guilt, which I, I don't think is is really such a bad thing. And he was talking to me all about stoicism, and I, I can see some aspects of it where I'm, I might be a stoic but I don't know enough about it to say, yes, that, that's me, I am. I, I don't feel like I'm one thing or another. Um, I feel like there's so many aspects to the world and to life and to our emotional state that saying I'm a stoic would mean that I'm not something else. And I feel like I need to have uh, every aspect of the human experience in, in my life. Yeah, but he was, uh, he was talking to me a, a lot about stoicism. Um, he gave me a whole bunch of books to read, which I never end up reading. <laughs> I just for, forgot. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, once I feel, you know, I feel like I'm quite happy in my life and quite comfortable in my shoes. And so I don't feel like I need to try and embrace another sort of, um, I don't know how to, to channel stoicism into something. Um, I don't feel like I need to change who I am. I don't need a, a lesson on stoicism or whatever else is out there to make me a better person because I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm doing really good, uh, especially in this current situation of having limbs missing and, and sometimes you know, just being a human being and, and struggling with daily life. Sometimes the missing limbs is the smallest part of my bad day. You know, sometimes it's doing my taxes. You know, that gets me down way more than having to get up and put my leg on. Our next question comes from a guy who probably also has complicated taxes. Yep. He's a Canadian living in the US and he asks, I know what that's about. How do you live your life now in light of being close to death? Oh, that, that's the funny thing about coming that close to death is you realize there's nothing left to be afraid of. Because a lot of the times our greatest fears, the root fear is death. And we all have fears of, you know, maybe dying so that we can't look after our kids or we're scared of losing limbs or become a paraplegic. But a lot of the time our root fear is because of death. And once you come as close to death as I did, it's like, I get a second chance now. You, like, I'm not wasting any more time. I'm gonna do everything. I'm gonna open through every open, I'm gonna walk through every open door. I'm gonna take every opportunity because I don't know where it's gonna lead now. It could lead somewhere amazing. So that's how I started doing the public speaking. That's how I now dive with great white sharks without a cage or I hand feed bull sharks in Fiji. I swim in the middle of the night with oceanic white tips and blue sharks and mako sharks, not because I'm stupid and not because, well, a little bit, a little bit stupid, not because I'm, I'm, I'm asking for death, but because I, I, I've mitigated the risk, I no longer have the fear, and it's amazing what you can achieve when you take fear out of the equation. Is there anything else that you're afraid of or you used to be afraid of that you're yet to try that you're looking forward to going at? Doing my taxes? <laughs> no, um, no, no, not really like, nothing that I really fear. Sometimes I get nervous about things, um, 
yesterday was a, a new experience for me, um, interviewing people on camera, uh, especially big stars like Jason Statham and, and Ruby Rose, who's like a superstar in Australia now. Um, and you've got this huge, big studio and all the lights are on you. You've got these famous actors um, and all the cameras and it's just, it's, I'm totally out of my comfort zone. I, in my presentations, I know exactly what I'm gonna say. I've been doing it for years. I know how to read the audience. I know how to give people what they want and what part of the stories work and what jokes work. Here I'm like, I was given the script not even 12 hours beforehand. And now I've got to remember all these questions and be funny and witty and smart. And my heart's beating out of my chest. So, but it's not a fear, it, it's just a nervousness. But I, I've learned how to transfer that nervousness into an excited feeling. Like just before I'm gonna get out of the cage with a great white shark, I'm like, oh my God, what is gonna happen here? You know, it's kind of, how do you say that word? You could say it with fear, you say, I, I don't know what's gonna happen. Or you say, I don't know what's gonna happen. This is gonna be, it's kind of like a jackass mentality. <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen, let's find out. So you get out of the cage and you swim out with the great white sharks all around you and they're not attacking you and I only have a GoPro on a stick and I realize if they charge, I'm totally screwed, but I've learned, you know, you have to rely on that training. You know, the military training, you're in a bad situation, you rely on that training because you've learned it for a reason. And I learned how to deal with sharks and how to hold my ground and the mentality of the shark and facing off with the replicated attitude like that. So I rely on the training and trust that it's gonna work. And so far it has, <laughs> so far. Yeah, that's something I'm gonna have to keep in mind as I interview people. I'm just gonna compare it to you going out against a great white shark with a GoPro and say, this isn't that bad, I don't know what's gonna happen, yeah. and it's cool. Yeah. Well, Paul, before I ask my last question, where can people find you online if they wanna look you up? Uh, best way is probably Instagram. Um, I usually put a lot of stuff on there. I was really bad at it before, and then Discovery's like, we want you to lift your social media game, Paul. And I'm like, oh, all right, fine. You're the boss. Um, every, we still all have bosses, even though I run my own company now. But I've actually found um, quite, kind of rewarding in some aspects um, because you don't just go on. I didn't go on there and post pictures of my abs and look at me. Like, I do some working out, but I do it because people are curious. And I have, you know, there's a lot of amputees out there wanting to work out and wanting to train. So I'll show my workouts, I'll show the equipment that I use. Uh, I get to do competitions, giving away Shark Week stuff. Uh, I get to have a lot of fun on it. I, you know, I hang out with my dog, I ride my bike, um, hang out with my girlfriend. And just showing people how good life can be when you embrace it. And so that's how I look at it. So Instagram's a really great one. I post a lot of stuff on there. Um, I got a YouTube channel, but there's not a lot on there. Um, some, some of the good motivational videos uh, that I posted in the early days with the shark attack footage, with the surgery photos, all that cool stuff. Um, I've actually had 54 people pass out in my presentations from showing the surgery photos. 52 men, <laughs> only two girls. Yep. We are tough men. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so yeah, just um, hit me up on Instagram, social media, whatever. Um, yeah, and watch Shark Week. Absolutely. Yeah, coming up in July. Yeah, uh -huh. July 22nd, worldwide. So Paul, my final question is, if you were talking to a young military leader and they've got someone, part of their team, they want to bring them back in the fight, maybe after an injury or something else takes them out for a while, they want to help them to feel included, bring them back in the team, mm -hmm. what advice would you give that person? I think the thing that probably helped me the most laying in my hospital bed um, 
thinking about how I was never going to be able to live my life the same again was finding value and purpose. Um, They're the two things that get us up out of bed every day. When we feel like we have value and we have purpose, whether it be um, your job or your responsibilities as a father or sporting teams or anything like that, if you have value, you feel like you have value and your life has purpose, then everything else kind of falls into place. So that's what I found for myself. I I feel like if you can help people find that value and give them purpose or just maybe redirect them, give them a little nudge in a certain direction so that they can find their own value and purpose, then you really don't have too much to worry about because that's just going to grow. And all you have to do is just give them a little nudge every every, every now and again because it's if you're not used to self-motivating in that way and, and self, you know, t- filling up the tank basically with value and purpose and motivation, sometimes it's nice just to have someone behind you, just maybe on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, just going, hey, great job, love what you're doing here. Hey, why don't you expand it? Why don't you, why don't you do more here or more there? And that, oh man, you'd be so good at that. Just giving them a little coaxing every now and again, give them that, that value and then giving them purpose as well. I, I think that helped me probably more than anything else. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Everybody, that was Paul DeGelder, Army paratrooper, Navy diver, and shark attack survivor. And if you want to help us get more great guests like this on the show, then be sure to give us a review on iTunes, and we'll catch you next time.